This episode of Doctor Who Too Hot for TV is sponsored by Dylan's brand new squeaking office chair. I promise, by next episode, this chair will be gone. Welcome back. It's episode six of Doctor Who Too Hot for TV. I'm Dylan. I'm Jack. I can't believe we're here. That's six episodes plus two bonus episodes. That makes eight episodes. It only seems like a mere six or seven months ago we were sat in a pub at Christmas and thought what we need to do is contribute to the oversaturated Doctor Who podcast market. And here we are now talking about all things Doctor Who. Yeah. What's what's eight episodes long? What's eight episodes long? Of Doctor Who. Uh, is there an eight episode Doctor Who story? We should know this. We should know this. We fucked it. Like something in the 60s? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know anything about Doctor Who. We do, but we only know about the spin-off stuff because we were like 90s kids. We're, yeah. Like, I've never even seen the classic series. I only know things about CDs. <laughs> things that are on CD. I know I can't think of a single eight part of Doctor Who story. If you're listening at home, don't at us. We don't care. Oh dear. Don't go away, listeners. My Who knowledge seems to have slipped a little. Still, not bad after 29,000 spin-offs. Anyway, just popped in to say there was, of course, an eight-part Doctor Who story, and it was, of course, the invasion. So, exciting news in the world of Doctor Who. Christopher Eccleston's back. Eccles Cakes is back. He is, he is. Four box sets with three stories in each of Christopher Eccleston. Is this a good idea? I think it is good. He's, I think he, he did stipulate that they all have to be set in the North. That was the only <laughs> conditions of his contract. And there are no monsters and it's just about unemployment. Yeah, it's about the decline of the mining industry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I'm very happy to hear Christopher Eccleston back. Like, I want to hear more of him and I want to see more of him. But his era seems so complete. I suppose they could do stuff before Rose. Yeah. But the only place where I really want to see it is, you know, in Boomtown and you've got Rose and Jack and the Ninth Doctor. They seem like they've been traveling together for ages. I'd take four box sets of that. Or that gap in between when he goes, did I mention it's also a time machine? Maybe he buggers off. Yeah. And he has 20 series with seven different companions. Yeah, I hope it's just him and Adam. <laughs> it can't be Adam. He's He's been cancelled. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Before uh, we do carry on, lots of people have said nice things about us on the internet. Okay. Um, now, I'm not going to read them out because that would be quite sycophantic. Uh, and I can't thank all the individual people. But I did want to give a shout out to some of the other podcasts and big Twitter accounts that said nice things about us. So On The Time Lash is an amazing podcast where they're looking at the new series of Doctor Who in order and then they match it up with the classic series. It's very funny. It's it's just one of my favourite podcasts. Then also Dynatrope Press, We Are Cult, Westlake Films, Hero Collector, The Wonderful Quiz of Rassilon, The All New Doctor Who Book Club and The Doctor Who Show have all retweeted us and said nice things. So I just wanted to say thanks to them and thanks to everybody that's been listening so far. You've made two old nerds very happy. Thank you, kind people. (laughs) Um, So today we're looking at two bloody McGann's. 
to Eighth Doctors. Before we get into it, what do you remember of the TV movie? Uh, I remember you turning up excitedly with a cassette one day. There, there was a bit of hype, there was some promo pictures, and then suddenly you just turned up with a VHS. Like, it's here. <laughs> <laughs> no, as it, there was, we didn't talk at all, it's just, it's here. Follow me to our grandmother's <laughs> sitting room, and we will watch this in silence and not say a single thing until the end. Uh, we, we did watch it in our nan's sitting room, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we watched the video, and then maybe like three nights later, it was on the BBC when people watch television. I remember that. Yeah. Um, so the promo pictures would have been the Radio Times where they kind of spoiled the fuck out of what the inside of the TARDIS looks like. Yeah. yeah. And I remember thinking, this is going to be the most amazing thing in the world. Yeah. And, you know, we rewatched it quite recently, didn't we? Yeah, it's still very good. It it's, is. It's really, really good. It's got the best budget of any Doctor Who story ever. That, that's very true. It cost $5 million, yeah. which is a lot of money now for an episode of a TV series. Yeah. So, And it's so well directed. It is well directed. It is almost it is overly directed in that it's, it's a bit like every opportunity to be like, we're going to rotate the camera and put it on the <laughs> ceiling and have it diving down. And it is, it is really good, but it's like, it's just like put money into every shot. They yeah. just, it's just like... Dirty Hollywood money. Just like, yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to cut away to this and this and this. Yeah. And every time the Doctor has some sort of moment or flashback, you'll get a flashback to like earlier in the episode or yes. like, you know, or cut back to the party at the hospital. Yeah. It's kind of dipped and had waves of fandom loving it and hating it and, oh, it could have been better. Because when it was the only bit of new Doctor Who and it had been in the eyes of most people, a failure. I guess it was a lot more maligned. Now we've got 12 series of new Doctor Who and it can just stand on its own as like a good a good Doctor Who story with a bit of a the thing is the ending got you know criticised at the time for being a bit deus ex machina or whatever but actually how many new Doctor Who stories end like that where somebody fiddles with some wires or points a sonic screwdriver and a bit of magic dust appears and uh, oh everything saved the day. Yeah yeah it's 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 very atypical new who but also the most surprising thing was the fact that it's in the square format of a typical doctor who story it's that it's the tv movie but it is not in widescreen and we watched it and i just thought who the hell's cut off half of the image like <laughs> is someone taped up the tv it was re yeah that was odd i have fond memories of that time just because it was new Doctor Who that was going to be on. And like you tune into like the big breakfast and they'd have a clip of the end scene, like the big battle between the Doctor and the Master. And I was yeah. like, this is going to be the greatest moment of my life. Yeah. But obviously it wasn't. I mean, Paul McGann in that console room, it looks like a Eurythmics video. <laughs> there must be an angel. Yeah. Yeah, playing yeah. with my heart. He looks like he's walked out of that music video <laughs> where it's just like very angelic and uh, very nice. What do you think of the supporting cast? So you've got Eric Roberts, Yee So, and Daphne yeah. Ashbrook. Daphne Ashbrook is great. She's a very, very good companion mm. and very likeable. Eric Roberts is Eric Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> it's odd because he says that he saw old episodes of Doctor Who and he remembered the Master. Maybe he saw Time Flight. I know, yeah, it's odd. It's like... it's that, Or the King's Demons. That I don't know where he's going with that character. I mean, it's definitely got more in common with Ailey, but it's it's do you know what it is? The thing is, it's a, like it's almost like a rip-off Terminator. You've got the leather yeah. jacket and the glasses, so it's kind of made to look like that because that's what baddies look like in the 90s. Yeah. And then he's trying to play this alien, but it it's the, the most alien nature of the performance is just that it's Eric Roberts. Yeah. I still 
you know he was supposed to be a decomposing corpse as yeah. it went on, but he, he had an allergic reaction to the makeup or something. I think that's a crying shame that that didn't happen. Yeah, he didn't turn into the decaying master. Yeah, but I love it when he gets sucked into the Eye of Harmony. Yes, yeah. I, I think that's that's an exciting moment. Yeah. Daphne Ashbrook and Yuji So. They're not a couple. <laughs> <laughs> You don't know. I know, I don't know, <laughs> I know you're going to make a big announcement. <laughs> They're together now. Do you think, if, had it gone to series, do you think they would have been the companions? Or do you think it would have been just Daphne Ashbrook? I think you could have had one episode where you come back and Chang Lee is there. Yeah. And he gets his gang friends to, uh, <laughs> I don't know, beat up some Daleks. <laughs> I mean, let's not forget that Chang Lee is a mobster. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, yeah. He might have killed people. Um... Now, actually, we don't know he's a mobster. That, to be fair, he's running from a gang. He he's hanging out with his mates, but yeah. they don't do any shooting, do they? Yeah. No, all he does is he just wants to nick the doctor's stuff. Yeah. So we don't a, see him do. He's a street bad. kid, you know. He's probably just comes from a deprived background. But I felt like at the time, the sort of fan press and stuff like that, because I remember reading about this in a magazine called, well, a fanzine called Rumors, which was like mm. an A5 photocopied thing, was essentially Gallifrey base but in print. And it would be like, this is what's probably happening on Doctor Who in the new Doctor Who. And they said one of the characters will be a gang member. But actually, I think that's quite sort of skewed. So in my mind, he's always been a gang member, but actually yeah. he's not. Is he? He's just a kid that's got in some trouble with a gang. Yeah. Well, the, the last depiction of someone streetwise in Doctor Who was Sophie Old playing Ace. <laughs> so it's, it's, all, it's all a bit tenuous. Daphne Ashbrook. Do you think she's, do you think she's companion material? Yeah, I think she's... Uh... She's very lovely. <laughs> I was quite stricken with her. She's very nice. <laughs> she is. Um, yeah. I guess the only difference, like, you have to get used to the fact that every character pronounces Doctor with an A. <laughs> doctor, I have your things. <laughs> I mean, that's the best line in it. Well, had it gone to series, it would have been called Doctor Who. Yes. Which is like that cream you use for uh, thrush, Dactacore. But anyway. <laughs> had it gone to series... Yeah. Would it have been any good? Well, this was... The TV movie is good. Yeah. It's like, it's not bad. And as a pilot... A big budget pilot, though, because they wouldn't yeah. have got five mil an episode, would they? Yeah, as a big pilot, you end up liking the Doctor, and you like Grace, even though he leaves Grace. That's what's odd. Yeah, it is really strange. That um, if you are going to set it up for a series of TV movies, you'd leave the companion at the end. Surely you'd want to go on. I think it would have been a weird mix of like sliders and something like something forgettable like Space Above and Beyond. Yeah. How long do you think it would have lasted? Well, we only know in hindsight that the the environment for science fiction on TV was pretty poor in yeah. the 90s. So I reckon it would have had one series. Yeah. And then that would have been it. Yeah, I think so too. Cliffhanger ending to the series and that would have been it. And, right. then, and there would have been loads of fan fiction and productions around that cliffhanger. The end of the series where the Doctor finds Ulysses, his father. Yeah. And uh, we have to go through that trudging of shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really glad they left Gallifrey and Law alone in the new series <laughs> and they haven't gone into any big major rewrites of the Doctor's origins. No, I mean, they, they didn't. They'd left it to the 70s. What do you think of McGann specifically just in the movie? Eliminate everything we know from it and let's just go that one hour that essentially he's the Doctor. He's good. He's really, really good. He's like, he is a bit, he's a bit like a, kind of softly spoken pixie-ish doctor that doesn't he just he genuinely doesn't really know what's going on around him except for his concerns with what's happening to the earth and yeah. the master i think it's great and the biggest shame is that we didn't get to see more of paul mccann on and, TV. and that when they did carry him on in other mediums 
for about the first comic and the first audio, you, you get that thing where he goes, he knows about someone's personal future and he gives them a pointer, but then that's something that's forgotten. And I thought that was quite a cool little thing to kind of, mm. that the Doctor all-knowing was actually kind of pushing people on trajectories. And I think you could have this cool thing where you push people on trajectories and over seasons these people come back and he's placing them all in the right place to kind of, do something spectacular. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you think Gareth would, would have come back after he'd answered the second question yeah. on his exam paper? Yeah. The first may look easy, but the second question uh, meant that he found I, a cure for COVID. I, I think had this gone to series and been a huge success, you may have seen a Gareth spin-off. <laughs> and it would have been called Gareth. <laughs> Gareth Unbound. <laughs> uh, I mean, let's not give Big Finish any more ideas. I think they've got the rights to the... Because, you know, for ages they didn't have the rights to the TV movie characters apart right. from the Doctor. But they've used the Roberts master. So yes. we can't be that far away from having a Doctor and Grace and Chang Lee box set, surely. We need it. Or we can find out what Brian did with the sofa. So today we're looking at the audio The Faith Stealer and the comic book The Flood. Now, usually I do a setup before mm. each one, but these both came out at the same time. So I'm going to tell you about what was going on between August 2004 and March 2005, which is when The Flood was released, with The Faith Stealer being released in September of 2004, so just after the comic strip started. So 90 seconds of the Space Pirates model shots were found. Marco Polo telesnaps were being, had been found, I think, in Warris Hussein's attic uh, and were printed for the first time. And the DVD of Lost in Time was the most exciting thing that happened on the DVD run at that point because all of those missing episodes were together for the first time instead of spread over several tapes. And it was the first time you got the Day of Armageddon, the uh, Daleks Master Plan episode that was found. You also got, and I don't know why these never took off, the MP3 CD of Power of the Daleks, which was basically a telesnap reconstruction that you could put in your CD-ROM. And then uh, we got the first audio release of a Target book being read, which was The Daleks, read by William Russell. And now they've done nearly all the Targets, so that was kind of the beginning of that reign. So other notable big finishes out included Medicinal Purposes, which was the sixth Doctor and Evelyn, but also featured Leslie Phillips and an unknown actor named David Tennant. I've heard of him. Yes. He played Casanova. He did play Casanova, and he was in the uh, Quatermass remake. Yes. That was it. And then he disappeared. That's an amazing audio. I've got, I've got very fond memories of that. And I revisited a few years ago and I was like, this is bloody great. Uh, also, they were on the third series of Dalek Empire. From the Dalek Empire? Yeah, it was great. It was a great series. Gallifrey season one was out. The Harvest had just come out, which introduced Hex as a companion. And one of my favourites, The Juggernauts, where we finally get the return of iconic Doctor Who monster, The Mechanoids. What a time to be a fan. The books had gone bi-monthly by that point, so they alternated between past Doctors and Eighth Doctors. And this was the lead-up to the Gallifrey Chronicles, so it included things like Emotional Chemistry, Sometimes Never, Half-Life, The Tomorrow Windows, The Sleep of Reason, The Headstone Memorial, and To the Slaughter. Have you read any of those? I've read them all. Amazing. Yeah. Can you remember much about the, the run of books at that time? They were trying to wrap up the outstanding story arcs that they had, knowing that the new series was coming and Paul McGann was soon to be a past doctor and no yeah. longer the main the main um the main doctor of the range so they were they were slowly tying up really big arcs with villains that they had and recurring characters uh which yet yeah, culminated in the Gallifrey Chronicles where it kind of 
ties up enough to leave the Eighth Doctor baggage free, mm-hmm. um, ready for the Ninth Doctor and Rose BBC books to be the primary range. Was it all Faction Paradox stuff at this point? No, no, no. Oh. That's way. That was way before this. They had a thing called the Sabbath Arc, where there was this villain called Sabbath, who was essentially like a a crap version of the Master. <laughs> And he had these kind of weird overlord alien people. And so they were wrapping up that. The universe exploded. There was lots of parallel universes. Right. And then the Doctor was still amnesiac. So it was all about leading up to the Doctor rediscovering his memories. I know I read the Gallifrey Chronicles, but I think you must have told me exactly what had happened. And I just wanted to read the last Doctor book. But I don't think I've read any of these. But obviously... The new series was on its way. So during this time, they announced the casting of Camille Cajou. Cajou? Cowdery. Jackie Tyler. Uh, (laughs) Noel Clark, Penelope Wilton, Annette Badland, and a man called John Barrowman was said to be appearing in the last five episodes of the series as a yet unnamed character. Doctor Who Series 1 had started filming in July. They went through the whole rigmarole of, we've got the Daleks, we don't have the Daleks, we've got the Daleks. The new logo was revealed. It was announced that Nick Briggs was doing the Dalek voices. And they announced Doctor Who Confidential. Do you remember Doctor Who Confidential? Yes. I kind of forgot that existed. Do you remember when Doctor Who would be 45 minutes long and then there'd be a 45-minute programme after it about the previous 45 minutes? Do you know what our mother used to call it? What? Doctor Who the Autopsy. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. That's exactly what it is. Um, Bring back Doctor Who Confidential, that's what I say. And of course, one of the most exciting moments in my fandom was when the magazine itself regenerated and it went from having staples to like a thick spine and it was a white cover of the yes. Doctor and Rose with the new logo. And the new sonic screwdriver. And the new sonic screwdriver. And I went into WH Smith's in Birmingham in the city centre to buy it with my then girlfriend Claire who laughed at the cover and the woman at the counter said, there's no need to laugh at that. It's back on the weekend and it's going to be bloody great. <laughs> that was the Birmingham Doctor Who Mafia that um, <laughs> protects any buyers of Doctor Who magazine. They, they operate behind WH Smith's counters. <laughs> so the Faith Stealer was released in September 2004, as I said. And it was the first story of the second season of the Divergent Universe arc. And it was recorded on the 11th and 12th of June, 2004. So this would have been in the, the last run of audios recorded before Doctor Who started in production again. Too, too, too hot for TV. The Doctor, Charlie and Keras arrive via the Interzone at the Multi-Haven, a sort of bring and buy sale for religions, which promises freedom for all religions. Keres begins to relive the death of his wife Lyda, who he killed as a mercy killing. He is taken in by a peaceful religion, but a new cult, the Lucidians, soon exploit his weakness, using their miraculite, and Keres becomes brainwashed by them. The Doctor and Charlie, meanwhile, are on the track of the TARDIS, which they hear and see take multiple forms. As the Lucidians expand their control over the Multihaven, the Doctor convinces their leader, the Cada, that he doesn't exist, as he doesn't remember any of his past. Without this anchor to reality, the lucidity collapses, leaving the population half genius and half simpleton. With the TARDIS having been just a mirage created by the lucidity, the Doctor and co head back into the Interzone. So... Before we get into the nitty-gritty, this is part of the Divergent Universe arc. Yeah. How would you describe the Divergent Universe arc? What, the premise or my opinion of it? Both. Well, the the premise is that the Doctor is infected with this Zagreus energy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that's funny, but it just is. I had a bad case of the Zagreus energy. Yeah, you infected me with your Zagreus energy. (laughs) 
And so he has to exile himself to another universe and Charlie goes with him. And it's it's meant to be a universe where time doesn't exist. And it has a very big premise. And I agree with uh, Gary Russell's verdict on it in that it's full of individually good stories. Not all of them are great, but none of the writers got to grips with the premise that it's this totally alien universe where there's no sense of time. Yeah. And really it's it's just like any other alien planet story for most of the time. I would I would say that's that's a fair conclusion. I think there are there are some amazing stories within there. Uh, the natural history of fear yeah. that's in there. Skirtso. Skirtso. Um I the last been quite good. Yeah. The last was so bleak. We should cover that at some point. Yeah. It's, it's so bleak. But you're right. And then you get like the story that Phil, Philip Martin wrote that introduces Keras. Creed of the Chromon. Yeah, which is just oh here he is, someone who's obsessed with mutations, like yeah. all of uh, Philip Martin's other releases. Yeah, cream of the croissant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, so there are some forgettable ones. The The more interesting stuff is when, the stuff where they're kind of jumping between the interzone and you're like, oh, this mm. is different. Mm-hmm. Where's the TARDIS? Um, and I'd actually, I'd completely forgotten that there was no TARDIS. But So you're kind of straight into the action with them crossing through that interzone. And I completely forgot about Croker. Yeah, same here. Yeah. I com- uh, well, I listened to this and I was like, oh yeah, there was that weird figure that just would pop up. And I never even knew what function he served yeah, by the, the end point- of it. What was the point in him? Wasn't he like something to do with Rassilon? Yeah, him and Rassilon were mates. Yeah. It was just, yeah, very odd time. I tell you what though, it's not for a newbie. You can't exactly jump on here. Like within the first few seconds, you've got a you've got two non TV companions. Yeah, there's no TARDIS. They're in this thing called the Interzone. It's like that. Those first yeah. sort of five or six minutes are very convoluted. Once you get into the story, you can fully understand it. But it's not a jumping on point for new fans. Yeah, um, and you can see why Gary Russell ended this arc when the new series started because he said you can't have these ongoing arcs, which yeah. I think is was the was the right decision. So the story itself deals with religion oh yes i know how very modern how uh, sexy or how very traditional (laughs) uh what do you think of its attitude towards religion it's uh it's not very positive about it (laughs) (laughs) it's the general premise is that uh it treats religion as this kind of um something that you can have a bit of but too much sends you loopy yeah that's the general attitude to it but i mean i would say my summary of this is that it does for uh, religion, what the Sun Makers does for taxes. <laughs> I think that's very true. There's loads of fun ideas that kind of mock religion, but also kind of show how fallible religion is as well. So, you know, you go in there and you've got to declare your faith. And so they declare themselves that they're the, the tourists. And then within 20 minutes, the tourist faith is spread throughout the yeah. thing. And there's people, which is which is a lot of fun. This is very Life of Brian. Yeah. And turning a religion into a sellable commodity is is, is quite great. And also, what surprised me, the God Delusion was still two years off. I thought someone had read the God Delusion and gone, I'm writing a bloody Doctor Who about mm. this. But it was two years off. And, you know, it's very much, especially through Keres, it's religion preying on the weak. But also, it is quite. There is a bit of balance in it. In that, there's a point where they have a they have a scientific centre where if you've had too much religion, you go there to be recuperated, and the scientist that, and the doctor that treats Keris for his exposure to this kind of faith is shown to be just as batty as the religion oh, yeah. as well. It's called the D Faith Centre, and it was 
like for me, that bit is much about kind of antiquated mental health treatments and also conversion therapies and things like yeah. that. Like it's, as you say, they're trying to cure your sickness as they see it in religion, but they're doing it in such a way that is just as unhealthy. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think, I think works. And speaking of Kerry's, uh, he's here doing his best Sixth Doctor impression, trying to strangle Charlie. Do you like him as a character? I, on paper, I don't think he's that interesting, but I think Comrade Westmass is quite likeable. I, I agree. I think, I think the character's a bit two-dimensional, and Conrad Westmass does the best he can with the material he's given. I think he actually works in this story better than he does in a lot of others, because he's in need of healing. There's a gap in his life, and he's been through some traumatic things, and you do... Some people find that in religion, some people find it in counselling, whatever. But he's written as just a bit too wet sometimes. Mm. But, you know, I, I, I do like him. But generally, the Eighth Doctor and Charlie, when it's just the two of them, I prefer that duo. You uh, you met Comrade Westmass at a party <laughs> once, didn't you? I met Comrade Westmass at a, part, a house party in Brighton. And he was like, hello, I'm Conrad. And I was like, and I, in my head, I was like, you're Kerry's the Utermason. You killed your wife. <laughs> But I didn't say this. I was just like, hello, how are you? And uh, yeah, he was having a break from acting. He wasn't sure what he was doing. And But a uh, very nice man. And we've got him here today. <laughs> Come round. Come. Oh, we, don't, we don't have him here. But it's just that thing of just being like, I know exactly who you are. I know exactly who you've depicted. <laughs> and I've got every CD. And just be like, oh, oh, you're Natter. That's interesting. I uh, I was I went to my friend's house a few weeks ago. And she was. it was the first time I'd met her boyfriend. And uh, I met him, and he was like, uh, uh, she was like, Dylan's a big Doctor Who fan, and he went, uh, I was in Doctor Who, and I immediately looked at him and I went, you were one of the contestants on The Weakest Link in Bad Wolf, and then he was goes, uh, I, I, do, I still do Doctor Who quite a lot on audio, and I went, for big finish, and he went, he just gave me a look, and he knew, <laughs> he knew he was in the room with a nutter, very nice man, very nice man. What do you think of uh, Charlie and the Doctor's relationship? I think they've always been good. I feel like Charlie's, by this point, she has, it has reached a point where they've done a lot with her character and she's kind of still just sticking around. Um, she Her, her relationship with Kerry's is, is quite good. Mm. Like, their, their chemistry is good. But um, there is the sense that they're, they've run out of steam a bit with where the characters are going to go. It's interesting that you say that because that is true. Once you once you get into that divergent universe, you kind of don't need her there. But they then, after this divergent universe arc, they really kind of rejuvenate the character and they have this whole thing where she goes off with the sixth Doctor for a bit. Yeah, and she also gets a spin-off series, but who knows what that's like. Actually, I think I listened to the first one and was like, when I was like, I need to listen to everything Big Finish do before I realised that I needed to get out more. I remember listening to the box, the first box set and being like, you know, that was a lot of fun because she's, she's a good actress. The character's really likeable. Um, and they do some really interesting stuff with her, but you're right, in this this arc, in theory, Neverland should have been the end of her arc, really. Maybe mm. up to Zagreus, but McGann. What do you think of McGann? Because at this point, he's been doing the audios for a few years. Yeah. And I guess what I want to know is how much of this performance is in the TV movie and how much of this is the audio McGann? McGann on audio is very different to the TV movie just because that kind of breathless manic pixie, I don't think it works on TV when you're dashing about and looking kind of odd in the background. Yeah. Whereas on audio, he's a lot more kind of reflective... He's still, he's still very upbeat and positive, but if anything, 
in the final scene of the TV movie, when the Doctor's alone talking to himself, that is the beginning of the Big Finish performance. Because yeah. it's that reflective monologuing. And that's how they begin the first Eighth Doctor Big Finish story, is yeah. him talking to himself in the console room. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I never noticed that before. All interlinked. Yeah. It's all interlinked. He's bloody great though, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he can do no wrong. Even the worst McGann story I've heard on audio are a bit like, oh, he's, he's still like the glue that holds it together. He never yeah. sounds bored. He just like, his doctor's just so full of life, but also he can do the dark turns and things like that. Yeah. And it will forever be a crying shame that he never got a series in one form or another. So it was written by Graham Duff. Do you know anything about Graham Duff? Uh, inventor of Duff Beer. <laughs> That's exactly it. He was actually a fictional character from The Simpsons who came into reality mm. just to write this story and then pff, gone. Uh, no. He went up the Duff. He's went up the Duff. He's got various minor credits as an actor, including a waiter in Deep Breath. No. Yeah. And a Death Eater in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and Part 2. Wow. But he's also wrote and produced a couple of TV shows that some of them are quite well known, some of them not. The Nightmare Worlds of H.G. Wells was the last thing he did. Uh, he did one called he Hebern, Ideal, and probably the most famous was Dr. Terrible's House of Horrible, which was a Steve Coogan series. It was kind of a pastiche on Hammer Horror films. He also wrote the three series of the BBC Radio 4 sci-fi sitcom Nebulous, which starred Mark Gatiss, amongst many other people, as Professor Nebulous. That's interesting because I listened to this and I thought I can see this as a Radio 4 play, like a, a, a some kind of a Discworld style fantasy one-off drama comedy. Mm. Um, and you could easily strip out. It's obvious that he had the idea and then applied it to Doctor Who, which mm. isn't a bad thing. Yeah. It's just, um, and it's got that Radio 4 feel as in it's, it's, it's a satire about religion without any of the kind of monsters and things that you get with typical Doctor Who. Yeah. Do you think it's a successful script? I liked it. So I enjoyed it. I think it's very funny. I think the world building is really rich. The dialogue, because it's so funny a lot of yeah. the time, doesn't feel like exposition. It gets away of it. There's that one scene where they go into a room where there's like an eternal prayer being sung a bit like in um, the rings of Akatan, Akatan, yeah. Akatan. Uh, and uh, the doctor goes, oh, it's a deity and ditty in one game. <laughs> in one. My favourite line was uh, one of the disciples of the Church of Lucidity sees that it's all just a big con and she goes, I'm through with following leaders. Tell me what you need and I'll do anything you say. <laughs> Um, it, yeah, I, I, I love that gag. The Doctor talks the villain out of existence, which is quite a generic end to the story. Like, I felt a little bit let down by the end. For something that felt like it was really building to something, he just basically goes, well, you don't really exist, do you? Yeah, I like the idea in that he's just a product of pure faith. Yeah. But um, that element of it, it sets it up as being like a season opener. Because yeah. it is, re even though the, the themes are quite adult, it's all handled in a very light manner. Mm. It was directed by Gary Russell, who, as we all know, has directed many of these things. It's quite, got quite a big cast for an audio as well. So Stephen Perring plays Croker, who's, who appears in many of these Eighth Doctor stories, and he's been in various TV shows. He's a reoccurring character in the Divergent Universe. He plays Matthias in the Gallifrey series and has been in several other big finish. Christina Rodska is Lan Carter, 
who has got a huge career, including Zed Cars, The Tomorrow People, Coronation Street, Bergerac, Campion, and Doomwatch. The Bordenan is played by Tessa Shaw, who's been in various TV shows, but most excitingly, she played a unit officer in Spearhead from Space. Really? Which I can only assume is the radar officer at the beginning, because that's the only woman other than Miss Shaw I can remember in that programme. Yeah. They're really sweaty in that scene. (laughs) As we record this, we're very sweaty too, because it's very hot. (laughs) There's also Bishop Parash, played by Ifan Hugh Dafford. And it's just nice to hear a Welsh voice in Doctor Who pre-2005, isn't it? <laughs> well, that, that was what I was going to raise, is the fact that the premise of this series is it's an entirely alien, different universe, and then a fucking Welsh guy turns <laughs> up. So it's like, the writers obviously weren't sticking to the premise that closely, yeah. but let's, the universe is full of Cockneys, so, you know, <laughs> what's it matter? He also did a Benny audio. Uh, he had a huge career. He was in Sherlock. He was in Gavin and Stacey, playing Neil the father. And, yeah, he, he was... Great. I like his character was quite because when a Welsh person shows up, they're always the jovial, fun guy, aren't yeah. they? Also, oh, this isn't the first time people have heard it, but it, I forgot about the theme tune. I forgot about this version of the theme tune because they've moved on in the audios now. They use a different theme. Oh, tune the David the Arnold theme. Yeah, but that was the first original theme arrangement that Big Finish did. It yeah. was the first one that we've had since the TV movie, and the TV movie was only used for. One night only. Yeah. So it's the first regular arrangement that they had. Indeed, actually, the big finish early releases up until the first McGann one, they used the Delia Derbyshire theme yeah. for, for all of them. Yeah. And obviously, David Arnold did like has done most of the James Bond since the nineties. He did Sherlock also. What do you think of that theme? I love it. It made me really nostalgic to to hearing it for the first time. It felt quite radical at the time, yeah. especially because we'd gone through the 80s where it was very synth-heavy, and this is obviously synth-heavy, and then you've got the uh, theme tune from the Paul McGann movie, which I yeah. know you're a big fan of. Yes, I love it. What, what, what is it about that, that 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 does it for you? The jingly-jangly piano. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, oh, It's just great. It's just like... It, it's, it, it just says, fuck it, it's Doctor Who. It's so uplifting. I it's know. like the happiest version of the theme tune. It's like, I want to go down the street waving a Doctor Who flag going, I fucking love Doctor Who playing that. I feel like I'm graduating and getting a diploma every time I listen <laughs> to it. it um, but the David Arnold version is kind of like he's tried, you can see he's tried to go back to the mysterious kind of mm. 60s, 70s thing, but do yeah. it in a modern way. A bit like the most recent Jodie Whittaker theme. Yes. I mean, what I like about this theme is that this is going to sound odd, but it's a really, really visual theme in that yeah. I listen to it. And I even when I first heard it as, a, as like a teenager, I thought you can you can almost see the title sequence that goes with this because it yeah. uses really sp- strange sound effects that almost are visual, like the sound of things passing by and exploding and crashing yeah. together, uh, which is re- a really inventive approach. Yeah. to having an you know an audio-only version of the theme. Yeah, it feels quite fresh, and it feels timeless in a way that other Doctor Who themes don't, I think. Like, it oh yeah, it's sound, aged really well. Yeah, it doesn't sound out of place now. Like As much as I love the McCoy one, and it's my favourite, it has aged badly. Yes. I mean, people didn't like it at the time. The Band-Aid kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say? Sum it up, if you could just sum it up. Uh, religion <laughs> times two. Religion times two slash funny. Is it a clanger or a banger? I think it's a banger. I think it's a moderate banger is the best way I would describe it. It's not an all out like, let's shoot yeah. shoot the club up. 
good. But also as a season opener. As a season opener, I think you're intrigued. Yeah. But I also think it probably doesn't do anything big enough as a season opener. Yeah. So I would I would like a bit more of a twist or a bit but it just it's solid. Solid. The Doctor and Destry arrive in present-day Camden Market to find the local resident suffering severe mental burnout and soon discover Cybermen stalking the area. The Doctor's associates at MI6 come to their aid and rescue the Doctor, but the Cyber Invasion Force quickly descends upon the Earth. After infiltrating MI6, the Cybermen unleash the Flood, a form of brain that can induce severe emotional stimulation that drives its victims to insanity. This forces them to beg for cyber conversion and to be removed of all emotion. The Doctor and Destry are taken prisoners aboard the Cyberman's time machine, where the Doctor offers the secrets of his genetic code as a bargain to leave the Earth in peace. The Doctor offers this information by sacrificing a regeneration through exposure to the core of the Cyberman's time machine, a fragment of the space-time vortex. When the Cybermen reveal their plan to betray the Doctor, the Doctor throws himself into the Vortex and absorbs the energy within the machine, using it to destroy the Cyber Invasion fleet. The Doctor is tempted by the infinite power of the Vortex, but gives up the opportunity to save his companion. The Doctor and Destry arrive back on the Earth, ready to begin a new adventure. Bloody good this, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> it is. Before we get into the details of the Flood, you read this, the 8th Doctor comics as they came out, right? Um, I, from the Glorious Dead onwards, yeah. take that back, the story before the Glorious Dead, where it's robots in an insane asylum, the autonomy bug, okay. from, the auto- from the autonomy bug onwards, I uh, read the comic strip, and then I went back and read them from the beginning. What do you think of that era of Doctor Who? Along with Big Finish. It is partly my era of Doctor yeah. Who. It, it was the contemporary, ongoing version of Doctor Who that I was properly following and really into. I'm exactly the same. I read all of the comic strips as they came out in the magazine, and I can barely remember a fucking thing about them. The ones I remember are the one where the Daleks, the good Daleks from Evil of the Daleks, show up. Yeah, Children of the Revolution. Children of the Revolution. The one with the Celestial Toy Maker. That was the first story ever. Was it? The first Paul McGann story was the Celestial Toy Maker. The one where he briefly regenerates into Nick Briggs. Yeah. And then The Flood. And those are the ones that stick out for me. I know I've read them all, without a doubt. Do you not remember The, the Master in The Glorious Dead? That's, that vaguely rings a bell. Do you know why? partly why I got into the Zwan comic strip? Why? was because you were raving to me when we were kids about how good The Glorious Dead was. Wow, and I've, I've erased that. <laughs> You were like, there's this guy that just keeps appearing and then suddenly it turns out it's the master and you were like, it's the best thing ever. And I was like, I need to, I need to see this. Well, I was going to say, I know that these comic strips kind of did twists better than they do on TV now because there was no way to know what was coming. And now the comic strips have to exist alongside the new series. They can never do anything that major. Yeah. But as you said at the time, it was, this is almost like our current Doctor Who. So I remember when I buy the magazine, yeah. I would go straight to the, I'd read the Gallifrey Guardian and I go straight to the comic strip, but I would never flick forward because I didn't want to get spoiled by what the, and the cliffhangers. They had some absolute belters, yeah, including this one in yeah. in in the flood, especially the first episode. So in my mind, this is one of the most iconic comic strips there is. 
I remember lapping it up at the time. But like the things I remember from it, I remember the Cybermen showing up at the end of episode one, the Doctor becoming one with the Time Vortex and that glorious red thing. I remember the Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen gag where someone yep. compares him to the guy from Changing Rooms and thinking, God, that's so witty. Uh, <laughs> and because you didn't get references like that in Doctor yeah, Who, you didn't. And it kind of felt like the first finale before we knew what a Doctor Who finale could be like. Mm. We expect that in the new series, but it's fucking there. Like several months before the new series started. Yeah. It feels very Russell T. Davis, doesn't it? It does. But it's also, they did a lot of Invasion Earth type stories in the comic strip. And if anything, it feels a lot darker than a Russell T. Davis Invasion Earth story. It feels, if anything, closer to something like Dark Water and um, Death in Heaven. Do you know why it felt so Russell T. Davis to me was, it's... It's set in modern Earth, but it's not set in a Doctor Who modern Earth. It's set in fucking Cam- Camden Market. Yeah. You know, Destry says the word bitches. There's pubs. When did you, you like, you haven't seen pubs in Doctor Who since, like, since the Pertwee era? Yeah. And that's only because they couldn't get Nick Courtney out of the pub. Um, <laughs> I did, there is a great scene where the Doctor and all of his, like, team are sitting just around a pub table chatting. Yeah. And then the Cybermen walk in, like, why aren't there scenes like that in <laughs> Doctor Who on TV? But there are. Like, in, if you look at Army of Ghosts, all of a sudden you see those sort of things happen. Like, I know RTD said he didn't know how he could work the Cybermen until he'd, until he'd read The Flood. Right. Um, and there's even three real-life news reporters in it. They're only in it for a frame, yeah. but they're all based on the, the news reporters of the time. I feel like Ross D. Davis particularly probably took a lot more than he'd probably be willing to. I'm not saying, I know that they, they would have seen the scripts, yeah. but this story was in the planning longer from what I understand than before they'd seen any of the scripts. But I feel like Russell T. Davis saw this and went, I'm having some of this. Yeah. Uh, in, in the way that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. And it's also an incredibly optimistic end for what is one of the darkest stories in the strip. It has a really, really happy, upbeat ending. Yeah. I see some other Doctor Who uh, influences from the new series. Maybe they're coincidental. You've got this Emily Rice character who only really appears, who works for MI6, who is basically Osgood. Mm -hmm. You've got time-travelling Cybermen, which are kind of very Chibnall at the end of uh, series 12. And actually, I think the Doctor as a god is managed much better than in Last of the Time Lords, where where the same thing happens again. Yeah. And at the end... They do the Doctor, like, seeing all his old mates, almost, you know. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, they have a montage of significant people from the Eighth Doctor's life. Yeah. So you get Izzy, the original companion of the comic strips for the Eighth Doctor. You get Grace and some other guy <laughs> who's less memorable. <laughs> How much of the, the Eighth Doctor in this is informed by the audios and vice versa? It's very hard to judge it because it's a comic strip. But I can, I can see, I mean, the Doctor gets tied up and shackled like he did in the TV movie yeah. by the end of this. So you can kind of see a, a, the same thing there. You know, yeah. he's, you know, put over the time vortex, kind of the same as the Eye of Harmony. Yeah. It's quite a good mirror to how it began. Um, Destry, she's an interesting character, isn't she? She's not the most likeable of companions. She's a, she's an alien, right? Yeah, she's meant to be... Um, like the uh, a royal daughter. Was she humanoid and got trapped inside the body of a talking fish? The character arc of Destry is that the the original companion Izzy meets Destry, who is an amphibious fish woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and they swap bodies, and 
Izzy's body is destroyed. Oh, yeah. And so Izzy becomes a fish woman and it becomes a very um, traumatic and angsty storyline, a very good storyline about her trying to accept herself. Oh, and I it do is and it is a uh, there is a lesbian subtext of her becoming more comfortable with herself. Yeah. Uh, but they eventually discovered that Destry is still alive in the body of Izzy because they've managed to recreate her body somehow right. in that way and then finally they swap back and then izzy is back in her human body and yeah. it's like i'm gonna go back home because actually my life wasn't that bad yeah um and she's comfortable with her sexuality and then a few episodes later the doctor bumps into destry again yeah and he sees she's depicted basically as this very she's kind of just a product of a very decadent and cruel royal society and so it's they travel together essentially as a it's his way of trying to i don't know a bit a bit like with leela just a way to just try and like uh, show her more of the universe and to yeah. try and help her because they're traveling together because she was left for dead and he takes her to a space hospital and then they travel together afterwards oh, that I remember this so they well. only really had two stories as, as as with her being an actual traveling companion um but it's a great arc for it for like two companions. Like if this was on TV, people would be saying that's the best character arc for a companion yeah. there was. But she is she's she's racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's yeah. racist to a Chinese man in it, which is, and like it plays into the plot. It's not just there for the sake of it, but yeah. it's also kind of showing how an alien person who doesn't understand Earth culture, yeah, might you know potentially be accidentally racist almost. Yeah. There's a brilliant line when they arrive, which kind of plays into her being a racist later on, where the Doctor goes, just make sure you keep your hologram disguise on, Destry. Human beings are usually very nice as individuals, but they can get a little xenophobic in large groups. The old basic tribal responses kick in, which, you know, kind of plays into that that kind of slightly racist moment. But beyond that, it all, that also plays into something the Cybermen say later on, where they go... We have chosen this era carefully. Earth is already in a state of heightened emotional turmoil. Collective anxieties have never been greater. I mean, what's changed? <laughs> it's only this. Oh, it's a documentary. The Cybermen. The Cybermen. The Cybermen. What do you think of their design? I always liked them, and it was a big. It was a big moment because it was a dramatic redesign, mm. and I thought they they were they were good. They're very um. They're, their hips do not lie. <laughs> their better... hips have no emotion. <laughs> it's a they're gangly and alien. Yeah, and I definitely prefer them to the Cybus men that we get. Yeah, the Moffat era ones are my favourite of the new series ones. But also because it's because it's a comic, they can make the Cybermen look utterly kind of. I know they're supposed to evolve from humans, but this is supposed to be them in the future, so it's yeah. their furthest evolution. So of course they wouldn't, although they keep their basic humanoid shape. Yeah, it actually goes a bit. Further than that, it's saying you know if there's not bones in the legs or yeah. something like that. It's yeah. like it's probably more in line with the Cybermen, where it's a brain that's yeah. been kind of upgraded. I like the way they can create these shapes and things with their fingers. It's a bit T1000 from Terminator yeah. 2, and they use that to kind of convert people. And yeah, the fact that they don't look like a man in a suit is great. I love the Cyber Skimmers. They fly around on these like yeah. Cyber Skimmers, which are a bit like the um, the Daleks hoverbouts. In yeah. In the uh, old comics, but also we have never seen a cyber invasion like the one depicts in this oh. comic. It is the most epic War of the World style Cyberman invasion that has ever been depicted. It's absolutely massive. 
the cyber ship, the interior of it is something that you could only do on a, like a hundred million pound film. And the cyber controller looks so menacing. I know it's a cliche to put red eyes and things yeah. like that, but it just works so well. But the biggest thing that they do is the way the flood works. It kind of encourages all these negative emotions that people can't handle. So they make it so people want to be converted. Yeah. Just to get away from their feelings. Yeah, it's the best Cyberman story. Like it's it's the it's the best execution of the concept of just making humans want to be converted. And yeah. I'm surprised that hasn't been pursued a bit more. Like I think De Death in Heaven and Dark Waters got close in having yeah. a really novel take on the concepts. But beyond that, it's always just been monsters that are coming to get you. They've never mm. really sold it as people want to be converted. We we also get this um, MI6 element, and it's not unit. And I think that's quite a, I want to say grown up, but grown up's the wrong word. It's quite it's a more modern novel take, yeah. isn't it? Of going, okay, well, unit's a bit 1970s. That's what we think yeah. of it. So let's get MI6. And you've got Woodrow, who is like the leader of MI6. Has he ever? So he, they appeared in this comic strip called The Fallen, yeah, which was. A return to present day Earth with the Eighth Doctor at mm. the start of his strips, where they Grace appears in it again. Oh yeah, um, and uh, Woodrow is essentially the head of the guy from Men in Black. Yeah, that's obviously what they're based oh, on. Obviously, I thought it looked like Brian. Was it Brian Cox that played the? No, it wasn't. No. But I thought it looked like it was Brian Cox. But then no, I, I think realized... it, I think it is. Like, they might have to base it on that. But the whole, you know, late nineties comic strip. Yeah. I think there's a big Men in Black element to it mm. the spies the unit spies that are mm. listening in and stuff like that it's it's all very early daughters late 90s it just feels like you say it's men in black what's the donald stark affair so um donald stark was a character from the first um eighth doctor story with mi6 and woodrow in which grace returned and essentially that that story was a sequel to the tv movie right so donald stark was a scientist working with grace who they had some fragments of the death worm that the master morphed into in the TV movie. Fucking And hell. they used that to um, try and merge it with human DNA. And so he basically became this big blobby alien thing. But it, it was a great story because they, they had this plot and it kind of picked up all the elements of um, from the TV movie. And they ended it on a cliffhanger where this preacher character had appeared in the story briefly and then at the end of the story the doctor's gone the day's been saved and mi6 just suddenly they're walking along the beach and they're like we found this body what's going on and it's a shrunken corpse and you realize that the master has been there all the time and then that leads into the glorious dead where the master fully returns right uh, i've changed the whole thing of this <laughs> podcast we're just doing eighth doctor comics from now on it's so good they it's are. like that's such a good sequel story. even in this heat that just genuinely gave made, made that <laughs> the hairs on my uh, arm stand up i think we should we should probably take a moment to credit who worked on the story since they, these are the two main people that oversaw yeah. the creative output of the eighth doctor comic strips so the flood was written by scott gray who um he was doctor who magazine's assistant editor and he still writes for doctor who magazine to this day and also is a writer for Un the uncanny x-men first class but his his main output was for the eighth doctor stories and then the artist is martin Geraghty, who is one of the most prolific doctor who comic strip artists and he started drawing for Doctor Who magazine in 1994 and he was essentially the primary in-house artist for the 8th Doctor strip and then outside of this he mainly does 
visuals for advertising and storyboards and character designs. Wow. So, I mean, we've said a lot about the story already, um, and it's fucking fantastic. The artwork is amazing. Yeah. Especially, like, I mean, we talked about the cyber design, but also just capturing present-day London as it was back then, which isn't too different to now. Um, The characters look great. And at the end, where the Doctor becomes the, you know, the Time Lord God type thing, the reds and oranges he uses just make it seem so much more alien than... If you did that on TV, which they did do, essentially, yes, yeah. it would it just didn't look like that and wouldn't look like that. Yeah. It's so like how do I how do I show that the doctor is now the most powerful, yeah, powerful creature on the planet. Yeah. And it's that. Yeah. And all credit to these guys, because comics you know, comic book work does not pay well at all. And yet it's one of the most labour intensive mediums there is out there. Like you've got to be a good draftsman, storyteller and designer. As well as many other skills as well, um, so I'm I am genuinely in awe of the output that these guys yeah. did. It's unbelievable. It is. It's absolutely incredible. The scene of the melting Cybermen. Yeah. In the end. Yeah. Is one of like the most iconic Doctor Who images I've ever seen. As the Cybership yes. yeah. burns and the Cybermen melt, it's like it's such a fantastic bit of art. I want to cut it up and stick it on my wardrobe it is it hey um no it is great but also we've been reading this in the panini graphic novel uh it's not a sandwich it's a it's a book <laughs> um and that's an extended version because they were this strip was released in the run-up to the premiere of rose yeah the air date was not fixed so they were having to assemble this story with the knowledge that either they might have had to have cut it short or extended it based on where the transmission date was coming which is amazing because it's such a good story Mm. and just to think that you you couldn't see them taking any bit out of it it's it's just it's it's like a perfect six-parter eight-parter it's an eight-parter but like (laughs) as in just like in terms of tv doctor who yeah um so and for so for the panini graphic novel they extended the scenes of the Cybermen melting. Really? So, so there's maybe an extra two pages. That well, I'm it. glad they fucking did because yeah. it looks great. Melt more Cybermen. Yes. Well, well hashtag melt more Cybermen. Yeah. Um, uh, it's so good that I feel like, I know they don't really do this anymore, but when Doctor Who came back, they obviously they adapted Jubilee and bits of spare parts were used in, um, mm. in Rise of the Cybermen. And th- for a very for a short time, Moffat wanted to do human nature. Not hu- no, they did human nature. Moffat wanted to do higher science. You could adapt this as a Doctor Who finale yeah. now, and you would have to change very little. Mm. Like you'd obviously have to flesh it out and make it work for TV. But it's just—I'd say it's one of the best invasion of Earth stories across all of Doctor Who. I completely agree. So we need to talk a little bit about the end. You know, they dispatch the Cybermen. They land in this beautiful field, and the Doctor and Destry walk off into the sunset. And also, um, the Doctor says he needs something in leather, which yeah. is obviously a joke about cows. Well, it's it's a joke, in a field of cows. It's a joke about cows. Yeah. It's a joke about Eccleston wearing leather. Yeah. But actually, retrospectively, the the next costume that the Eighth Doctor gets is that blue leather sort of coat for the Dark Eyes box set. Yeah. Uh, well, how do we know that Dark Eyes doesn't take? place before it definitely takes place after it look at the way he's dressed oh yeah yeah okay. i like i think the mcgann audios yeah and comic strips you can kind of you can 
Yeah, you can you can merge the, the you timeline. Can, you of can them. merge them. The the books less so. Yeah, but you know that that the books weren't really my. So you were consuming all the Eighth Doctor stuff pretty much. Yeah, into, but whereas I was comics and audio, so I say screw those books. Yeah, screw all the hard work that those people did. <laughs> no, at some point we'll probably cover a book. I imagine, but. It wasn't always supposed to end like that, was it? No. Because a man named Russell T. Davis said, do you want to do the official regeneration into the Ninth Doctor? Dun, dun, dun. But they didn't do it, did they? They didn't do it, partly because of branding reasons. So they were given the stipulation that Christopher Eccleston had to appear in the comic strip alongside Rose. Yep. So they were promoting... The new series, which is The Doctor and Rose. So as a brand, they just have to be together. Um, they also couldn't show Christopher Eccleston in the strip before Rose was transmitted. So they proposed one alternative ending in which Eighth Doctor is ravaged by the energies of the, the Time Vortex, very similar to how Christopher Eccleston does end up regenerating, yeah. which is All weird. Right, <laughs> So in the TARDIS, the Doctor says goodbye to Destry and he regenerates. And the final panel is of an unconscious Christopher Eccleston. Rusty Davis vetoed that just because it didn't meet the guidelines of what they were proposing. They tried to work around it. So they had suggestions of, well, either they could start the regeneration yeah. and not finish it. But they felt that was just too much of an unsatisfying. It's a big cliffhanger. Yeah. And it kind of leaves Destry just kind of with a big question mark over as to what, how it ends. Mm. Um, it was just considered too much of a, a cliffhanger rather than an ending. So Russell T. Davis suggested one alternative idea, which would be that the Doctor starts to regenerate but doesn't finish. And so you could have a, maybe a quick story to tie up Destry's arc and just have a Doctor that isn't fixed and he's just kind of glowing with energy for the whole period. But they all felt it was all just a bit forced. And so they just thought, we'll just... We'll, we'll give up the opportunity to depict the regeneration. And I think I think it was a, a wise move because I actually really like the ending to this story. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think as fans, we desperately want these things closed off. Yeah. But actually, I think what we got, albeit 12 years later or whatever, with The Night of the Doctor yeah. was a much better, than even though we would all like a fucking miniseries, yeah. a much better conclusion was actually seeing... Him regenerate. I mean, I'm sure they would have ignored the comic strip, but... mm. and it, they, yeah, they said it was unfair to Destry as well, right? Well, yeah, because they did devote a big chunk of the story to mm. Izzy, then Destry, and I would have liked to have seen where they would have taken it because they they were really good writers. Like they really devote, they really cared about the characters. It wasn't just they could have just done filler. They could have they didn't have to be this good yeah. in terms of the comic. They could have just they could have done like okay, we're going to do. A, First Doctor strip one week and like the third yeah. Doctor this week and just do greatest hits nostalgia yeah. pieces. But they really honour the characters that they've been developing over the last, I mean, how many years in between the TV movie? We're talking like 10 years, 9, 10 years. Yeah. And it's a perfect fitting tribute to the end of that version of the Eighth Doctor yeah. and then the characters that they've developed themselves, yeah, including Destry. Have you got anything else you want to say? Um... No, I think it's a good, it's a, it's an amazing send-off for a really special run of strips. I think that some of the most creative storytelling that's been shown in Doctor Who. It's, it's also got one of the best gags 
of uh, about the Cybermen ever. Which is that? Guy? So the market store guy says, what do the Cybermen want? And the doctor says, to make you like them. And he goes, well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I howled with laughter when I read that. It was absolutely ridiculous. What a stupid gag. It's so Moffat, though. And it's clever, but it's stupid. <laughs> it's just like, how has nobody done that on the TV? So it's 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 a clanger, isn't it? Oh, no, it's not. It's a banger. Banger. It's a banger. It's damn swank. It is damn swank. It's 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 stick it on your wallpaper. Stick no, <laughs> stick it on your cupboard. Worthy. It is, which is a reference back to our fifth Doctor episode, just in case nobody got that. Yeah. So, two weeks time, Michael Williams of the Quiz of Rassilon is going to be here to talk about Blood of the Daleks, the first Eighth Doctor and Lucy Miller story, because he has never heard an Eighth Doctor audio. So we had a quick chat about a week ago that I recorded. There's like a little bonus episode. I've been doing these bonus episodes during lockdown. I'm getting busy with work, so they'll probably stop sooner. Uh, or they won't be as regular. We'll just be the monthly ones for me and Jack. But next time, I decided we need to change things up again. So we'll be back in a month. We're just doing Blake 7 now. We're just, it's all Blake 7. No, we have the last few episodes been doing... Right, we pick a Doctor, we do one audio and one comic strip. Yeah. I thought we needed to change up the format a little bit. So, next time we're going to do three things, but they're three very short things, and Jack doesn't even know what these are. So, we're going to do Save Yourself, which is Terence Dix's last short story for the Doctor, from the Doctor Who Target book. Ooh. We're going to do a thing called Arosadini, or Arosadini, or Deny. Do you know what that is? No. It's a five-page short story by Mark Gatiss from the Doctor Who yearbook in 1995. And we're going to do The Prisoner, which is a 20-minute audio by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore set in the world of Caldor City, Ooh. which came as a bonus release, I think, with an interview CD with Paul Darrow. So the, the three short things, three what I hope are very different things, yeah. I just thought, let's change it up and, and, and do something a little bit different. Yeah. Um, so there we go. And then the one afterwards, Jack's going to choose what we do, and he won't tell me till we're on the podcast. So, I mean, we've just gone rogue now. Anything could happen. We could be doing in a fix with the Sontarans, for all we know. We won't be covering that. I'm going to choose the Eighth Doctor books, but in Braille. <laughs> Good. So, until next time, I've been Dylan. I've been Jack. We are Doctor Who Too Hot for TV.